Hello listeners, it's Adrian here from Arcade Attack and today I've got Farron Thomason on the show. He has worked at Nintendo, Sega and Atari and shares some great stories about working at all three amazing companies. Loads of great Jag Tool, Mortal Kombat 3, Bubsy, you name it, he talks about it. So guys, sit back and enjoy a great chat with a true retro gaming legend. Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the latest Arcade Attack podcast. I've got another really special guest joining me today. A man that has worked for three iconic companies in the video game industry, arguably the three biggest uh, names in, in retro gaming, Sega, Nintendo and Atari. We've got Farhan Thomason here. Hello, Farhan. Hey, how's it going? A real, a real pleasure having you on, on our podcast. We've had you on the site before with a text interview, but actually getting to, a chance to talk to you is a real honor. So thank you for your time today. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, it should be a lot of fun nice one well let's get let's get straight into it so how did you first get the opportunity to enter the video game industry and is it true that you originally were trying to get a job at electronic arts or ea back in the day right so um after graduating college i came to california and had some random jobs i think the first job was doing video yearbooks yeah so that was kind of interesting video yearbooks was like a franchise that you would see in the back of a magazine and you would be like an independently owned business. You would like go to high schools and videotape all of their events, all of their sporting events and their classes. And then you'd send the tapes to a, like a, an editing house who would just randomly assemble all of the tapes together. And then they would send them to the kids at the school. So I would like show up to like a high school dance or, or a football game and like, videotape these events and then give them to the guy that was paying. So actually I never knew how they came out. And I kind of did this because when I was in school, I studied a few different things like um, film and video as well as interactive studies. So when I got to California, um, I noticed that there were ads for video game testers. So while I was doing this video job, I saw, Oh, become a tester at EA. And honestly, I was never like a huge Madden fan. And this was kind of in that Genesis Madden era. So I'm not sure that I had the, um, the mad know-how to be like an EA sports tester. But then fortunately after that, I saw an ad for Atari and um, kind of the rest is history. So when I got to Atari, started testing Lynx games. And then shortly after that, um, we begin to start the Jaguar era. Love it. I mean, were you a bit gutted when you didn't get the job at Electronic Arts or were you, you quickly, you know, you quickly found a job in Atari, to be fair, so it wasn't that long a wait, I suppose. Right. I think we're talking actually a matter of weeks. And it's oh. possible that um, – so this was in that uh, early 16-bit era. Mm. And so there was actually probably a few testing jobs, but um, Atari was the one that bit first. And that's kind of where I got my start. Brilliant. Before you actually worked at Atari, what was your preconception to the company? Were you an Atari fan before? Did you, did you ever play Atari or was that – quite neat you so you know admittedly obviously when i was a kid i played like my friend's 2600 
But during those early era console wars where you had the ColecoVisions and televisions, Odysseys and Atari, actually I was definitely a little bit more of an Odyssey ColecoVision person. And then once I got into those um, early home computers, I was probably definitely on the Apple Amiga side than the Atari ST or PCs. But when I was a kid growing up, actually I had a lot of different um, computers because my dad had a modem company. So actually, I kind of got my start testing, working for my dad in terms of testing and then copying all the software that we would send out to the people that bought his modems. So I actually had a pretty varied experience on a lot of those early computers, including obscure machines like a K-Pro or an Osborne. But um, I think in terms of that era of computing, I think my favorite was probably going to be the Amiga. Oh, love that. Oh, Amiga. And actually, correct me if I'm wrong. The Amiga wasn't that big in the U.S. Is that fair? Because we, we're massive Amiga fans uh, at Arcade Attack, but it wasn't huge, was it, in the U.S. of A? So um, when I was a kid, another thing that I did, I was definitely really into film and video. Mm. So now we have the YouTube era where everybody's got their camera phone and can record videos all the time. So when I was growing up and in high school, me and my friends, we did a lot of uh, public and educational access programming. So we would uh, shoot the sporting events for the local community and the um, city council meetings. But then on the side, we'd make our own shows. So we had our own talk shows, cooking shows, all kinds of like crazy uh, (laughs) pre-YouTube era stuff. Kind of um, not kind of as rambunctious as like Tom Green, but uh, definitely if you've seen Wayne's World and you see how they're on that community access, that's kind kind of how our shows were. So um, the unique thing about the, the Amiga is that um, it was designed to interface with the NTSC signal. So all of the programs that we use to generate the credits and the text for our cable programming, we used Amiga for all of that. So that's kind of how I fell in love with the Amiga. And then, of course, you had all of the great games. And then you'd, get the, you'd go buy like all of the, the UK magazines that would have all of the cover discs. So, and the Amiga definitely, I think, as a creative tool was still, it was still in that good, um, in between, um, like a PC and a Mac. It allowed you a lot more flexibility. It had the windowing of the Mac, but yeah. in terms of access of DIY kind of technology, you have the DigiView where you can like digitize images. You had software to help you editing. Like, I think it was kind of miles ahead of PCs and Macs at that time. Plus, it had a great selection of games. Well, can I ask what your favorite games were for the Amiga? I know we're getting off, off the topic a little bit, but love to know your, you your know, views. Probably, I would say, Wings and Lemmings. Those, uh-huh. those are probably the ones that come to mind. So, ironically, I ended up uh, working on Lemmings at Atari. But I remember the first time I got Link, Lemmings on the Amiga. It was great. Um, you know, I don't think I'd ever seen a game you know, that did all these unique things and was cute and cartoony and funny and, you know, hugely addictive. Love it. Um, going back a little bit further, you said you made those crazy videos. <laughs> do any of those still exist or are they just long gone? I hope not. Technically, that is probably not true. Um, actually, I'm in the middle, middle of a move and was going through my storage unit and I have, um, I found a box full of uh, three-quarter inch videotape so three-quarter inch videotape is what people use when yeah. back in like the 80s when they were shooting remote. And so I think technically they exist. I just don't 
and I think some of my friends might have them on VHS, but hopefully they don't turn up because they're pretty <laughs> uh, cringeworthy, as the kids might say, say today. Are you not tempted to um, whack them on YouTube? <laughs> no. Oh no, they're terrible. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's talk about Atari then, because you got the you got a job there. Was it was it always your sort of dream to work in the video game industry i don't want to belittle um testing video games by the way but was that almost like a stopgap for you initially because it obviously led to a huge career or were you always thinking no this is the industry i want to work in and can you sort of recall your really early days at atari uh you know technically i always considered myself more like a film that was kind of where i wanted to go when i was growing up was to make movies but that being said i was just like a huge video game fan um i went to nyu and I remember I would just haul my uh, collection of NES cartridges and then like New York in like the late 80s, early 90s to like find Nintendo cartridges. You'd have to go to these like crazy electronic stores in Times Square and like they would like sell Castlevania 2 for like $100. And then you kind of had to like negotiate them down to a more sane price. But I think sometimes those spots actually got the games quicker. So it was always exciting to go down to Times Square to see what new games the electronic store has. So I was always a pretty big gamer, and I also slept my Amiga along to college. I mean, I went to NYU, then I returned back to Michigan and went to Michigan State. So I was a pretty hardcore gamer. And when I was at Michigan State, I also was part of uh, the ComTech Lab, which I think is still going on today. And I think a few people from the ComTech Lab, other than myself, have gotten into the video game industry. But we did a lot of early hypermedia virtual reality, augmented reality stuff. And this was in the 90s. We were doing motion track, motion tracking on the Amiga. So That's you could crazy. do things that were people were doing on the Wii in like the 2000s on the Amiga in like 1991. Wow. That is insane, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, the Amiga, I think, was an amazing machine. It had a, And everybody that was programming for it found all the tricks to exploit everything. So kind of I was on this dual path of doing of shooting like film and video. So like a lot of the friends that I went to college with, you know, they ended up, um, you know, working in, in film. And then basically once I got to back to California, I was just kind of in this inflection point. Yeah. I was shooting videos, but I was like shooting video yearbooks. And that was just kind of weird and random. And, um, you know, this great opportunity from Atari came my way. And so of course, you know, I was going to take it. Of course. Yeah. Um, so what was it like working at Atari? Was it very different in those early days compared to how you finished at Atari? Or? Um, you know, I think in general, Atari was kind of the same. I think the video game, so I have a lot of friends that worked at other places like Sega. Hmm. And, you know, that, for lack of a better term, I think the film was Grandma's Boy. That was <laughs> the one with the, that Sandler produced film with the video game testers. Yeah. Yeah. So... It was pretty crazy. It was very uh, locker roomy and frat housey, and I believe that was probably kind of definitely the roots of that were in the QA department, and things got a little bit more straighter as you kind of went up that corporate ladder. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was a, a, a industry that was in its um, early years, so things were fairly rambunctious. Um, and, you know, the testers, I mean, it was interesting. The great thing about being at a tester at Atari, say, rather than at maybe some other company was that the testers got a lot of input into the games and one could argue maybe there was too much input, but at the end of the day, Atari was very short staffed. So somebody had to pick up the slack and obviously you had a a bunch of early 20 something 
people that wanted to make a lot of contributions to the industry. So it was a great place to get started. Brilliant. And what, what was the first ever game you, you tested? Uh, for, was it the Tory Lynx, you said, yeah? Yeah, I think it had to have been like Jimmy Connors Tennis or the Malibu Beach Volleyball. But I think that there were some games that never actually made it out the door officially, like the Road Riot. So basically, we were always testing probably three or four games concurrently. And um, the ones that definitely made it out the door was the volleyball and the tennis. But I'm not sure whether Road Riot made it out. And it's possible that the first thing they threw in front of me might have been Pit Fighter. Like, I have a, a vague recollection of that. But definitely the... Um, the volleyball and the tennis. And then things like the road riot, I think, had communication bugs. So it was just kind of eternally in test and never really made it out the door. Right. And possibly Raiden for the Lynx as well. I, I, yeah, I, like, I do like Raiden the Jaguar. I haven't played the Lynx version. Um, you said earlier that testers had quite a bit of input and they could actually sort of, you know, make, manipulate games and offer their advice and, and things to get... Can you give me any examples of that? Any, did you test any games specifically and then you thought, well, could you add this in and it actually finished in, in, the, in the actual game? I think pretty much I would say all of them. A, you have just the basic uh, user interface. So sometimes the developers would send in builds and, like, the menus would be odd. And so we would give them recommendations on that all the way to something like Cybermorph, where I think everybody that tested and worked on the game, part of that contribution was also generating two or three levels in the game. So we, uh, attention to detail, kind of gave us a crash course on how to work their level editor. So everybody just cranked out levels like Mad Men, and you know, they put them in the game. So it was kind of, it just depended on what was, needed and you know what was uh you know needed to get the games out the door no fair enough fair enough um so was it was cyberwolf the first game you tried and tested on the uh, on the jaguar then is that right um it was obviously the most hottest because that was the pack-in for the launch but i think concurrently we're probably doing raiden uh trevor mcfur club drive um some of those games took a lot longer to come out and my guess is there's probably early builds of Alien vs. Predator, but that, that could have, it is possible that could have come later as well. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, I don't want to go back and forth too much because I can't want, kind of want to go in the uh, order of, of your career. But this, this question kind of links to all three big companies you work for. I've got, it's from a Facebook, one of our Facebook uh, fans. Do you feel the overall culture of Atari... Uh, really gave the company a good chance to succeed in the 90s, especially against rivals such as Sega and Nintendo at the time? I think it was always going to be a little bit more challenging for Atari. Um, Both Sega and Nintendo at the time were definitely working off probably hotter pop culture properties as well as mountains of money and um, really good sales teams. I, I think... One of the hidden things in video games and consumer products that people don't really realize is actually how important the sales and the marketing is. I mean, Nintendo, had, and I probably to Sega to some extent, probably because they probably cross-pollinated and replicated each other's playbook in terms of sales. The whole soup to nuts of sales from the merchandising level of all those like signs that you see at the register or in the back of the store, like Nintendo had all of that unlocked. That was like a huge um, 
part of launching games and hardware is getting this, everybody from the salespeople to the merchandise people on the same page and getting pumped up to launch the game. And I think that those are like the little hidden things that happen in the background that nobody realizes about a launch. The advantage that Atari had is that they were um, didn't have as much people, but they were definitely as aggressive in terms of selling as well as very scrappy and just pretty hardcore salespeople. And while I don't know this for a fact, my guess is they were probably making a profit off of every unit of software and hardware sold, where that may or may not have been the case. Definitely probably not for Sega as much and maybe just more of a break even for Nintendo. Although the NES had probably already paid for itself by the time it got came to America. So they were a little bit more, Atari was definitely a little bit more scrappier, um, boots on the ground, didn't have the huge salesperson army that uh, Nintendo and Sega had. So the culture was different. We were, we were just kind of the people with the back store wall and like scrappy and willing to street fight it out. And that was kind of how we waged that war. So almost like the underdog really, uh, which is exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Rocky. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that is, yeah. So that's kind of how we looked at it as kind of like the scrappy Rocky, always having that underdog attitude to go out and, try to be creative with how um, we implemented the marketing and getting people excited about it and, you know, clever ways of engaging the media. So everything was maybe a little less traditional because the infrastructure was not the same as a Sega or Nintendo. Oh, fair enough. No, good. Appreciate the answer. Um, I've got to ask about the Tremels. Um, they, they've got, <laughs> lots of you have different views about the Tremels, but obviously you you were there working with them. What was it actually like working with them as um, people running Atari? Was it a, a nice atmosphere? Was it quite tense sometimes? There was quite there's quite a few stories going around. They were quite hard to work for, but I'd love to hear uh, f- well from you really, Farron, if that's all right. Yeah, you know, I mean, like I said, I think um, their reputation probably precedes them in some respect, but you know what? They were pretty cool in terms of giving a lot of people, including myself, a lot of opportunity and kind of showing people the ropes and showing, oh, how do you take this idea and that's just a little random kernel of an idea and turn it into a retail product that ends up on store shelves all over the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, I I mean, they definitely supported developers. They gave people opportunity. you know, I think it would have been nice if there was a little bit more marketing put into mm. the launch of the Jaguar and um, a little bit more developer support. But I think the reputation of Atari got people interested and the you still had a really good uh, hacker culture back then. So I think a lot of people were interested in, oh, what can I do with this hardware? And people looked at, at that as a challenge. And I'm not saying that looking at new hardware as a challenge works really well as a business model. Maybe it doesn't. I mean, obviously the goal is to get product out the door, but I think that they were able to, you know, maybe sometimes in spite of their reputation, get people excited, give people a lot lot of opportunity. And, you know, they were definitely very supportive of all the ideas that most of the people that worked at the company came to them with. So, I mean, I don't look at, I mean, I look at my experience with them as, you know, fairly positive. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we, I've spoken to James uh, Purple Hampton in the past, uh, and he was very, he, he actually basically said what you said, saying they, they gave him opportunities. He probably wouldn't have got elsewhere. He, he was given pretty much a free, not a free reign, but he was given loads of chances to work on Alien versus Predator. So, yeah, it, it marries up, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. Like, I think they were they were very supportive in trying to get cool and unique ideas out there into the universe. And that type of thing, I think you saw a little bit of that happening at Sega, but Nintendo was definitely, that was not necessarily always the path at Nintendo. Yeah. Now, obviously, I don't know if you you want to talk about this, but someone on Atari uh, Age of the Forum, they've they got a quite, more of a statement, really. I guess they want to know if you saw this happen. But there's a rumor, at least, that during an Atari company meeting, Jack or Sam Trammell, they, they don't know the name, but apparently picked up a Jaguar and threw it against a wall, then told everyone they were fired. Um, I mean, is that a load of hot air, or is there any truth in that at all? You know what? I, I didn't see it. I don't know when that happened, mm. but... Um... You know, I think the Tremels at times could be very passionate. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. I, I, yeah, I think I've heard that as well. Um, I want to talk about the Jaguar a little bit, if that's all right, because I'm, I'm a fan. Actually, I've got a massive collection uh, at home. I've, I've got most of the games. Uh, but it, a lot of people do do look at it as a complete disaster. I don't think it's as bad as people think regarding, you know, the, the numbers. Uh, I think it's quite a powerful machine in a way, but... What's your personal views on the console, and why do you think it didn't really catch on as much as other consoles at the time? In general, I think that, as many people have said in the past, it was very difficult to program with. And when you are also giving people opportunities, sometimes you're not getting the most experienced developers working on the platform. So you're not necessarily always getting... You're getting the people with a high amount of passion and interest into wanting to make something happen, but maybe you're not getting the people that have been through the process multiple times and can execute, you know, on time and on budget to make a product that has to be sold at retail. And I think that that was a very challenging thing for most of the developers to come to grips with. And, you know, it kind of showed, you know, some of the software is a little rough around the edges. A lot of it was uh, maybe rushed out the door because at the end of the day, you still got to sell some units and get it out there, um, you know, bugs be damned. Mm. And, you know, obviously putting all those things together does not really guarantee a huge um, hardware release. But that being said, I don't know if you've read the recent stories on the development of the, the Famicom in Japan. They had a ton of returns as well. Uh-huh. So as the saying goes, hardware is hard and um, perfecting hardware um, is not like kind of agile software development. Sometimes you have to kind of let it out there in the wild and find out where the bugs are. And it is definitely a little bit harder to iterate because since it is a hardware machine, in general, you're only uh, costing down the hardware. And it is obviously tough to fix the bugs that might have cropped up and keep the compatibility with all the pre-existing software. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges in releasing a hardware console platform. And I think, you know, to release something that innovative and at that time frame, of course, was going to be a bit challenging. And I'm really appreciative that, you know, people have kind of fallen in love with the console, you know, some 20 plus years after the fact. Yeah, it's got a huge resurgence, isn't it? Homebrew scene, people, it's very, very popular online still. People have given almost a second chance, um, which which I'm really happy of as well. Um, 
let's talk about Cybermorph because you mentioned it earlier. Obviously, it was the packing game for the Jaguar. Uh, it's not my favourite Jaguar game, this, um, if I'm being completely honest, but it, it's certainly ambitious. But do you think that was the correct game to uh, sort of showcase the console at launch? Or if you could sort of go back in time, do you think maybe another game should have been there uh, at the start of the Jaguar's life? You know, if we had a Doom at that time or Alien versus Predator, obviously those would have um, been far more impressive and dramatic in the marketplace. But I think that the one thing that we wanted to show was being able to, you know, render real-time 3D landscapes. And at that time, you had the Star Foxes of the world coming out, and you had the beginning of people getting more into 3D, where everything was kind of at the crossroads. Obviously, the PlayStation was in this embryonic stage, so not everybody understood what could be done with 3D. But we wanted to show something that was cutting edge and things that no one had ever seen before. So I think based on the cards that we had to play at that time, that was probably, I think, the best move. Because, you know, it had the digitized speech, it had the 3D. It was a very unique item, I think, in the marketplace at that time. And that wasn't running on a PC. Yeah, I mean, it does show amazing 3D graphics at the time, wasn't it? Um, Yeah, were you involved in the maps on that game, Farron? Is that right? Yeah, so like I said, at some point, I think when ATD showed up, they either had a handful of maps or a very small amount of maps, and they were like, okay, guys, we need X amount of levels by this date because we've got to ship this bad boy you know, for the launch. So basically, it was kind of an all-hands-on-deck, and everybody was using their level editor and just cranking out levels. Love it. I mean, did you see your sort of testing uh, sort of career sort of evolve very quickly at Atari then you give them lots more opportunities it sounds throughout is that right exactly it's like um you sign up for swimming lessons and they only have a when you're six years old and they only have a 15 foot pool and then the swimming instructor only has a boot on and then he places the boot firmly in your rear and you fall into the 12 foot water so you really don't have any choice but to learn how to swim really quick sink or swim (laughs) basically I've got to talk about Bubsy. Um, Bubsy is a game that we have a bit of a love-hate relationship on Arcade Attack. And I, he's a character, I'm sure you are aware, that <laughs> some people do ridicule. He's a bit of a, he can be a bit of a joke. But how do you, what, what's your view on Bubsy, uh, the, the game first and the Jagger? Because I, I find it very hard. I have to say, I find it hard as a game. But what do you think? Because I think you said in the text interview that you, you actually think it's not that difficult. Is that fair? I think at the time, so again, going back to the tester thing, one of the the gifts and the curses of being in test is that you would grow numb to the difficulty of a game because you'd have to play it for eight plus hours a day. And so you could almost play things with a blindfold on. So by definition, the testers always thought things were too easy because we were only showing the game to testers. And then occasionally you would show, you'd have a general focus test and show it to the general public. But the general public's time on those games would just be very short. And you were just looking for kind of a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You weren't actually grading the difficulty curve. And then you're coming from uh, the UK. You still had those Amiga games from Psygnosis of that era, like Shadow of the Beast, that were just like mind-numbingly punishing, right? Mm. Like oh, yes. things that were, you know, those games, as sexy as Shadow of the Beast looked, it borders on unplayable too. And then you just had a whole host of those types of games that were popular in Europe at that time that weren't necessarily popular in America. 
And one of the things that Atari did was hire most of the developers were from Europe. So they had that late 90s game design aesthetic where your job was kind of to punish the player and, you know, make sure that you could drag that gameplay out long enough so that the person that bought the game couldn't return it or that there was enough challenge in the game, you know, to give them X amount of hours at play. So from the difficulty level, that's kind of what we were trying to do. It was trying to give the game that kind of like faux longevity based on making things maybe a little bit more difficult than they should have been. But then at the same time, there's probably a few glaring collision bugs that should have been caught. But I suspect that we just had to get the game out of out the door. So those didn't get fixed. Fair enough. And what would you like? Do you like Bubsy as a character? Are you quite proud? I mean, what do you think of him compared to like Sonics and the Mario's really? I know it's a bit hard. You know, it's a big pedestal. Yeah. But. You know what? I mean, so I've, I don't know, you know, if you were around at that time in that early nineties, everybody and their mother was in a race to create a quote mascot game. Yeah. So Atari had a few, I'm sure you've seen some of the, um, the images online. Every, yeah. every game company was trying to make the cute mascot and accolade, I guess had some success with Bubsy. And we did this, deal with accolade where we bought like 75 percent of their library Mm -hmm. the advantage of bubsy was that it was already done on the genesis so being able to port that 68,000 code to the jaguar made it much easier and that's probably why that was i think maybe the only of those accolade games that actually made it out the door and the character bubsy himself i don't know i'm kind of ambivalent towards it i mean it was just a cute character from the early 90s um it was okay. Was he at his best, the greatest platform character ever? Probably not. But, um, you know, it was just one of those things. And the fact that it's actually like gotten so much kind of like hate and trolling on it. Yeah. That's kind of what I love. I just like when people like say Bubsy sucks just to go on like the forums and like just kind of talk how great Bubsy is. <laughs> but that being said, there's a lot of people out there that actually love the game. There's a lot of people that are mm-hmm. into like Bubsy fan fiction. So Bubsy does have his fans, you know, and I'm kind of, you know, grateful to be part of the infamous history. Of, yeah, the uh, legacy. Yeah, the legacy. <laughs> I, mean, cause, I mean, say what you want about the Jaguar version, the PlayStation 3D versions were just like atrocities as well. Yeah. So it's not like, I mean, from a kind of Ed Wood Plan 9 from outer space perspective, you know, I think I would put Bubsy at the kind of the top of like campy, Games that are like so bad that they're good. Nah, fair enough, fair enough. How would you rank it in with the other platformers on the Jaguar? I think we've got Zool 2 and obviously Rayman. Uh, have you are you fans of the other two games? I mentioned? You know what? I think Rayman has stood the test of time and is definitely the the king of of those platformers. I think I was never like I think I probably played Zool maybe on the Amiga before I was at at Atari, um, but. I, I can't say that I was ever a fan of Zool as I feel like it had the same, some of the same issues as Bubsy in that kind of UK generated platforming game, which may or may like when I was younger and you would kind of play everything. I think I just thought it was okay, but neither Bubsy nor Zool, you know, I kind of lumped them actually kind of in the same boat, but obviously Rayman has transcended the, the list and is kind of like a mainstay in popular video, video gaming culture. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, another game you worked on, which I, I haven't played truthfully, is NBA Jam Tournament Edition. But 
it's a, it's a good port. It's it's a very respected game. It's quite rare, I think, as well now. But what were you always a fan of this of this particular series? And uh, how what was it like working on this particular title? Oh yeah. So I think NBA NBA Jam is another kind of legendary game and one of the few. So like I was talking about the accolade deal, getting the rights to do NBA Jam was one of the deals that actually went right. Um, you know, it was a great game in the arcade. Um, it had a lot of innovative techniques that are kind of still carried through in gaming today. And plus, it's a great sports game for non-sports gamers like myself. And you can kind of play with anybody, and the game is fun and competitive. And that, like I said, that was one of, I think, the, the shining stars on the JAG. I think probably the only issues really in doing that. I mean, High Voltage did an excellent job. You know, that was another deal where we had to track, put in a lot of uh, elbow grease and tracking down the artwork and the source code and getting the approvals and things like that. But other than that, um, you know, that was one of the nicer things to be associated with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't played it. I have played White Men Can't Jump. I don't know if you played that particular game. Yeah, NBA Jam. So, again, much like the platformers in that early 90s period because NBA Jam was so hot. You had the Charles Barkley, which I worked on for a while, and then you had the White Men Can't Jump. So you had you had this kind of street basketball thing that was really big during the 90s. I'm not sure how big basketball is in the UK, but you know, basketball's only actually become huger like in America since that time. So there was just a pylon of a ton of um, quote street, you know, two on two street basketball kind of games. But definitely NBA Jam is the best out of all of those. I'm desperate. I'm desperate to play. I'm a fan of the uh, sort of Mega Drive version for sure, the, the Genesis version. Yeah, definitely. I've got a bit of um, this is a Facebook question. It's quite a quite a snooty question, Farron. So I apologise. It says, "What are your views on Supercross 3D, and why was it allowed to be released with such a, a low frame rate? Was it a case of simply getting the software out as quickly as possible?" Right. So. I didn't, wasn't around when they shipped it. Uh, I did, you know, work and visit the developer at some point during the development. My guess is it's another case of, so when it was probably 50, 70% done, you're like, wow, this looks really, really slow. And they're like, yeah, you know what, we'll, we'll fix it. You know, like there's that famous cliche in movies, we'll fix it in the edit. And I think uh, video game developers were like, oh yeah, well, we'll optimize it and get the frame rate up at the end. But obviously, I think they were probably a little bit over their head, and maybe there could have been the option to window it, and then maybe that, if maybe they never tried that, or that option could have gotten vetoed, and that might have given it a few more frames. But early on, it looked like it was promising. And, you know, when you look at it today, much like looking at a lot of PlayStation software, everything looks a little muddy and jaggy. So I think at the time, it didn't look as weird. But clearly, they never really optimized the code to where it needed to be. And when it was out, you know, the Jaguar was kind of on its last legs. And, you know, there was obviously commitments with retailers to get that stuff to the stores. And everybody wanted to, you know, get those last remaining, extract their last remaining value out of the platform as they could. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Again, bit of uh, another Facebook question, bit of a a rumor which you can you know quash if you want or you can say it's true but is it true that atari and their developers i'm sure i'm sure it's not all of them but didn't always share code and libraries between the office so a little bit of rivalry is that fair or is that a load of rubbish 
Um, I think it just depended on the people. I'm not really sure. I think so. I would say for almost 90% of the launch titles, regardless of where the developers were from, everybody was at Atari HQ. I think some people got, got along and probably definitely, I know that Leonard helped everybody and I know that there were other uh, developers that were on staff that helped everybody and there was probably some third party people that help some of the other third party people because I'm pretty sure there are times where we'd just have like a conference call or a meeting where you would have two developers in the same room to solve a specific problem. But was this a coordinated effort? Uh, that I'm not sure. Some of it was probably a little bit ad hoc and a lot of it was probably just dependent on the relationship between the parties involved. So I don't think I, I would say that people definitely shared ideas and definitely helped each other in the process of developing the games, but I don't think that there was just like this official process all the time to be efficient about it. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Baldies on the Jag CD. Was that almost the last game you worked on for the Jaguar? Yeah, I think I, I don't think I was there at the time that they actually shipped it, but mm. uh, you know, me and the developer actually, you know, we've been pretty good friends for, for quite a while. And somehow he's managed to sell Baldies on like, 30,000 different platforms awesome, beyond awesome. the Jaguar. I yeah. mean, yeah, Baldi, was, was it a Jag CD exclusive initially? Or I can't, but I know, yeah, it's, it's, it's been ported quite a lot now, isn't it? Um, Unclear. Uh, because maybe it was pitched as the Jaguar version having like unique Jaguar content, but yeah. maybe not as a Jaguar exclusive, if, if you kind of see with the distinctions between those two different things. I get it. How about working on the Jaguar CD? I mean, that's a rare unit. I'm really quite lucky I've got one, to be honest. Um, do you, what, what was it? Was it really different working on that game compared to other Jaguar games, or pretty much the same code and so forth? You know what? I think they all had the same uh, challenges. I think some people got it. Um, again, even when you look at the Sega CD, at the end of the day, the value proposition that I think 99% of developers were bringing to those early CD platforms was just shove better quality music and yeah. better quality video onto the disc and then just load the game into RAM and call it a day. Um, nobody, I don't think anybody was really trying to create a quote, unique interactive CD experience. Although that's what everybody said at the time, but in retrospect, it's like standard game with some video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think of Baldi's? I mean, it's, it's a good strategy game, isn't it? Oh, I know. I, th I, thought, I thought it was, you know what? I thought, because I worked on another similar game at Nintendo, uh, Warlock. I thought that there was definitely um, something to a cute, cartoony RTS game, like kind of Command and Conquer or, or Warcraft for the masses. And I guess those types of games didn't really hit the kind of mainstream until mobile or maybe you could argue advance wars or fire emblem yeah but uh, yeah i thought that that you were just going to have a trend of a lot more kind of cutesy takes on what was traditionally more hardcore style game and you know i thought all the gimmicks and the gags were great i thought the animation was cute i thought the characters had a little bit of that ardman flavor to it you know yes. i thought there was something there and you know dave whiteman the the developer i mean to his credit, he was able to sell that game in like every literal corner of the world on and every conceivable platform that you can think of. It's 
probably, I would say, it could easily be like the most ported game in the world. That's mad, isn't it? <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. Um, I think That's I've seen... I think I've seen pictures, Farrah, of you holding some Baldi's toys. Is that right? Is there some figures that are made for it, or are they used within the game, or just merchandise, or am I talking rubbish? No, both. So I think, so when I went there, um, you know, everybody, I mean, the cool thing about the 90s, and I guess somewhat, you know, you still have that today with a lot of entrepreneurial culture, is that people love to punch above their weight class. And so when I visited Creative Edge, the developer of the game, they had all the models that were used for the stop motion. And they're like, yeah, we're going to take these and you know, try to pitch it and make it into a full-length TV show because we already have the animation and the models. And then they would take those molds and then made them into like little figurines. So like at, at CES or E3, he'd give out some of the, the smaller scale you know, mini figurines that he made. I mean, Dave was a great, uh, you know, salesperson and was always trying to like elevate his content to the next level nice well respect um I, i'm gonna read out this exact question from uh, atari age it's i mean there's been huge debates i'm sure you've seen it about mortal kombat 3 on the jaguar was it ever being made how long did it come along here i've literally got this question it literally says um everything he can remember about mortal kombat 3 every little detail who were the coders how far along did it get? Did did you ever see an alpha build? Was there problems with getting the source codes from Williams? So, Farron, there's a lot of questions there. Anything you know about Mortal Kombat 3 on the Jaguar, we'd love to hear. I'll try to parse it out. I mean, the problem is, at that time, at Atari, I think when I was a producer there, I was at one time probably responsible for all the accolade games. And then, you know, they would go out and license more properties. And then we would get these acclaimed games. And then the problem with both the Accolade and the Acclaim games and the other licensed property is that when you do a licensed game, so like we would license NBA Jam or Mortal Kombat, but I believe that we would license it from Acclaim. We did an overall deal with Acclaim because I think there's some old sheets out there that have like Iron Man or Exo Man War and stuff on them, as I recall. Okay. So we would do these lump sum deals. And then you'd find out, oh, you actually have to go to talk to Williams or Midway to get the source code. And so then you'd have to go down those rabbit holes to secure the assets for the developer. And then, then you'd have to find the developer. And so I, usually we would try to go to the people that worked on the games previously. And I think that's how we ended up with Probe for Mortal Kombat because Probe and I think Sculptured were doing all of the versions for Mortal Kombat. So I think we had struck a deal. But at some point when we were trying to um, get everything going, Mortal Kombat 3 went from Mortal Kombat 3 to Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3. Well, then we're like, well, why would we want, you know, last year's news? Give us Ultimate. So then we'd have to go through and try to, like, um, redo the deal, re-get the source code. All the while, you know, we're still kind of, like, burning time to try to get the product to market while it's still kind of a relevant property. And then, to be perfectly honest, a lot of the developers would try to get that first milestone so they would get that upfront money, but then they would back burner the project until we got them like everything they needed to start, start the project. So you would just kind of get in these loops and imagine doing that for like three or four different games. The upside, somebody like high voltage software, and I don't know how true this is, but um, it seems, it seems correct. Since they lived in the same city that NBA jam was made, I think, 
they just had a smoother process of being able to um, knock that one out of the park. And high voltage, we already had kind of like a working relationship. The guys at high voltage were great guys to work with. So they went out of their way to kind of make that happen. Whereas other developers got that deposit and then would kind of like stonewall us. Oh, we need the artwork for this asset and we can't do anything until we get that. So that like we've already paid the money and then they can like sit on that money while we're going around chasing our tail trying to get the assets from the license holder. So wash, rinse, repeat that a few times. And that's how you get a situation like Mortal Kombat where it's obvious that some work was done. The developer had the ability to probably give us a great prototype, but there is no real incentive on their end to deliver. And so thus you just have these like stories of maybe somebody saw it at E3, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. Honestly, that was towards the end of my tenure and I don't remember everything. I feel like we got, you know, at least a menu and maybe a character standing in the background. But to be perfectly honest, it's been like 20 years and yeah. it's tough to remember out of, you know, everything that I've worked on. No, fair enough. Um, it's a shame though, isn't it? Because Mortal Kombat 3 would have been, I mean, there, there are some good fighting games on, on the Jaguar, but it, I think it's crying out for a really top one personally. And I think that would have been a great game, but I don't know if you've got an opinion about it. Are you, are you a fan of Mortal Kombat anyway? Oh yeah. Honestly, I think the Mortal Kombat Ultimate, Com- Mortal, Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3 Maybe it's just in the era that I grew up, I find like that kind of the weird pinnacle of Mortal Kombat. I never really got into it. Some of my friends are fans of like, uh, I guess, X and Eleven, mm. but those are like very overly complicated. And then the complexity is just like layered on through all of the DLC. And like, honestly, I don't have the um, brain power to kind of deal with all that. But I like the the short and sweet old OG Mortal Kombat where they gave you a lot of characters, a lot of secrets, but they weren't just like dragging the DLC and the secrets on forever. And, um, you know, it would have been great if we could have had that on the system, but there was a lot of legal issues that had to been, um, in place for them to like execute with the ground running, you know, like we would have had to have gotten them all the source code and everything immediately to remove any excuses from their, from that part. And, you know, them as a developer, while I'm not saying that they always do this, but theoretically they're supposed to um, kind of like uh, firewall themselves from the independent projects. And they're probably not supposed to like steal the art assets from one client and use on the other. So it would have been nice if they could have done that, but theoretically they weren't supposed to engage in that kind of behavior. Okay, very no, Farron, thank you. Appreciate it. Another another game that never got released is is Mind Ripper, which I think actually made it out as a correct me if I'm wrong, a, a horror movie, but it was originally supposed oh, to be yeah. a Jag CD game, I believe. Again, I might be talking rubbish here, but was that in development? And did you did you work on that game? Did you ever see Mind Ripper? And have you seen the film? I so, so this was one of these kind of random things that. You know, this falls back into what we were saying before, um, into that opportunity kind of thing. So when we were shooting the video assets for the Black Ice White Noise project, we're using an actual Hollywood film company. And the people that were running the shoot just happened to know, like, the producers of that movie. And they're like, so this was like uh, kind of a a mid-tier video distributor in the 90s. 
So they had a lot of like uh, rights to a lot of kind of like eh, B movies and some anime, just some interesting stuff. And you're like, okay, you look at it. If the price is right, you know, you could make decent games out of them because most of it was all action oriented. And in theory, they were giving us a lot of access to the actors and the film. So in the case of Mind Ripper, we were actually able to go on set. So I was able to actually go to Bulgaria where they shot this thing <laughs> and get on the set. So I, I think I saw the comment that said Lance Hendrickson was like disavowed any knowledge of the film. But <laughs> yeah. you know what? He was great. Like we have Lance Hendrickson on a treadmill, like doing his, his running, you know, he, he gave whatever was the minimum time to, uh, devote to this project and he did it with a smile and you know, he was cool. Everybody involved in the project was cool. Uh, we're able to go to the Bob Keen. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's in, I think outside of London, he did the special effects for Hellraiser. So oh, he did course, special yes. effects for the, so he did the special effects for the movie and he's like, Oh yeah, come in and shoot all the models. So I got all of the reference material, uh, tier text, the developer of everybody's favorite Supercross 3D. They were the developers on the project. And, you know, the initial game design that we cranked out was probably much better than the film because it kind of employed the same tactics of Alien versus Predator, where you could either play the role of the monster or you could play the role of the heroes. And, um, and I think there was probably some multiplayer aspect, obviously, where, you know, the heroes and the monsters could face off. It was very ambitious. The, I think the creature designs... Were, were cool. You know what? I had the game design document and I think I got rid of it a while Why? back. Why? And, no, and, and, you know, I think maybe, I, and there's no, I have very little traces of it, but it would have, but the, all you could, you know, it had all of the levels, you know, in terms of game design documents that I saw at Atari, this was probably one of the more thought out projects. So they had, you know, full turnarounds of all of the characters, all of the monsters. You had like, mutant dogs and you know it was very uh what do you call it resident evil so it would have been probably better than the movie because we would have been able to use all of the kind of um campy horror fmb footage to cut away to and then we had the actual models from the movie as the characters in the game so it was very ambitious and um like i said that was a good opportunity that the tremels laid out i mean it was just a shame that it couldn't have even gotten to a, a playable standpoint, but it looked good. I wish I had some more of the materials. I might have an image here or there, or they've been posted on like Atari age to see what some of it looked like, but it was definitely, it was definitely in kind of that, um, AVP mold, but like kind of like a B movie version of alien versus predator. Sounds awesome. Well, if you ever come across anything, please do post it. I'm sure, I know people would love to see it. It's one of those infamous. I love to see it. I, I, yeah. I and I, I kick myself for getting rid of it. You know, I think part of it is that I never, looking back, I never understood the love people would have for all of these retro games and the nostalgia. I mean, at the time, I was just like, this was just work, you know? As much yeah. as I loved it, I didn't see the, the cultural significance of it at the time. We've had um, BJ West on the site before, just a text interview. I want to try and get him on a podcast in the future. And obviously, you mentioned Black Ice, White Noise, another infamous game <laughs> were you involved in that at all or you just uh yeah like i was yeah? helping them um when we first started out and helped organize the some of the video and stuff and that was another one that you know i think had a lot of potential i mean the thing was in those days everybody was trying to punch above their weight class 
and that was awesome. So everybody had really great ideas and really broad vision. And say what you want about the Tremels, they definitely supported our vision and did everything, I think, within reasonable bounds, maybe beyond reasonable bounds, to help make these games happen. But at the end of the day, they're very complicated. You notice how there's only really, there's very few open world games that are actually successful and satisfying, and they're mainly made by one company. So <laughs> it is very difficult to kind of execute on kind of open world, especially before open world was even a thing. And, yeah. you know, the style that we had in the game, the characters, the weapons, you know, all that would have been great. I mean, and you could, I think there's like demos that you can kind of see a taste of what we were going for. That's, yeah, you can. I think, I think BJ still sells them on his site, I believe. Um, yeah. How about, I mean, this, again, this is really sort of digging into the sort of unreleased games, but do you have any sort of alpha or beta builds or any sort of documents linked to any other kind of secret Jaguar games that weren't released? Someone says here Highlander 2 or 3, for example, or anything like that. Is there any other, any other games we haven't mentioned in our chat today that you, you think would be quite interesting to talk about briefly? Ah, not that I can think of, although I'm sure there's some... So I think one of the cool things at Atari was that we were always constantly coming up with ideas. So there's, and maybe some of them are still floating around the internet. Yeah, we would always write little pitch briefs and try to pitch new ideas constantly. Um, Very few of those ideas even got to any form of prototype stage. But what I'm actually really surprised at is a lot of the third-party developers, those there's games on those lists that I've never heard of and there's actual demos. So, you know, say what you want about the Jaguar. There was kind of a reasonable amount of things that were in the development for that platform that even I didn't know about. And, you know, it's cool to see people enjoying, you know, all the fruits of people's creative labor from like 20 years ago. Yeah, 100%. Well, we've been talking about Atari for a, for a long time. I've got, I think, one or two really quick questions and we'll move on to the other parts of your great career. Um do you own a Jaguar still? Do you, do you play it at all? When's the last time you actually got your hands on the Jaguar controller and played a game? You know what? I never, I don't, I've never had a Jaguar. So when oh, I left Atari, I really? felt like, oh, you know what? These things are going to be cheap at KB in like a year. Yeah. So I was like, I'll just go to KB and get one. And then I just ended up doing other things and kind of forgotten about it. And then I'll see them at flea markets, but they'll be missing something. And then yeah. I'm like, you know what? I see them enough. I'll just get it next time. And then now the prices on them are just run up so astronomical that I'm just like, I guess I'll just stick with emulation at the moment. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Um, do, you, do you own the games at least that you worked on? Or, uh, no, no, no Jaguar software as well? Or? Yeah, no, I have all the stuff that I worked on. Oh, okay, yeah. I just, don't have an actual, I just don't have an actual um, piece of hardware. And at some point, I do kind of want to track down the bootlegs of uh, Barkley basketball and Brett Hull hockey. Yeah, of course. So they were very close to being completed, weren't they? Is that fair? Both those games. I don't know. Somebody, it looked like when I was reading about them, it sounded like people com- tried working on them after the fact. Oh, okay. I would say those were like, out of almost anything that I've ever worked on, those were like the nightmare projects from hell. That, that was... Um, that was definitely jumping in the deep end of software development. Oh, fair enough. Um, really quickly, this is another question from Atari H. So it's obviously very Atari related, but Lance J. Lewis, uh, I, I believe he sadly passed away quite recently. He worked on many games. Did you, did you ever work closely with Lance and do, how, oh, yeah. how do you remember him? 
Yeah, no, Lance was great. And, you know, when I moved back to the Bay Area, so, I mean, once I left Atari, I kind of traveled around. I went to, like, Seattle for Nintendo and then L.A. And then when I returned back to the Bay Area, yeah, like, me and Lance actually hung out. We went to, like, um, there's this, like, uh, B-movie host, and he had, like, a party at some theater in the Bay Area, and we both went and hung out. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, definitely sad to hear of his passing but yeah Lance was um Lance was fun I mean back in those days like I said it was kind of like uh for lack of a better word kind of like a frat party everybody was fairly rambunctious Lance was like a huge fan of like Howard Stern so we would always be like playing Howard Stern clips and things like that I mean while maybe not quote PC in today's context I mean those days were definitely a lot of fun I mean, we definitely put in a lot of work, worked a lot of hours. There was no overtime. So things could sometimes, you know, grind on you and get a little crazy. But yeah, Lance was like, you know, kind of like a, a, a ray of sunshine in those times sometimes. You know, we'd have the Nerf fights and throw stuff at each other. Yeah, that, those days were a lot of fun. Thank you. And I appreciate you sharing that. And it's quite a personal question. Um, so why did you leave Atari and where did you go next, Tharon, if you don't mind me asking? So yeah, at some point when it was clear that the Jag really wasn't selling as strong as everybody had hoped, there was just a round of layoffs, which unfortunately for the video game industry, that was like the first rough lesson that I learned of the video game industry is when stuff ain't selling or the management changes, you know, heads typically tend to roll. And unfortunately, my head was rolling during that first round of layoffs. I don't know if it was the first round, but um, that particular yeah. round of layoffs. And then... So kind of harking back to the black ice, white noise, um, one of the people helping us was affiliated with the people that did the animation for Life with Louie and a few other Saturday morning cartoons, and video games were hot. So those guys somehow entered into a deal with Tommy the Toymaker to make an N64 game. So then they contracted me to help them this, develop this N64 game named Dead Ahead. And again, that was another game that definitely punched above its weight class. It was meant to be like a third-person action-adventure final fight meet Zelda kind of game with wow. trains. The one wow. caveat is the person that was paying everybody's bills, it had to have trains. That was the <laughs> mandate. So you were in a subway station and... I'm not sure. I can't remember the reason that there was trains there or everything had to have trains. And that was, um, that was the price for that game. And so initially it started off as a mist game, like kind of a point and click adventure. And I guess they couldn't sell that. So then they contacted me and then I redesigned it as a, um, third person fighting action game. And then I think a few years ago, another person that worked on it with me actually, I think, ported some of it to iOS, but I don't know if that's floating around on the net anyplace. So Software Creation, another uh, kind of legendary UK developer, they did the actual uh, coding and artwork on it. What's the game again called? Sorry, I didn't... It's called Dead Ahead. Dead Ahead. Okay, it sounds interesting. It's very ambitious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, like I said, everybody was punching above their weight class trying to make cool stuff. Brilliant. And did you work at Sega next? Is that right? I've got that right. Yeah, and then after that, um, Sega was trying to get into online games. So they had a wholly owned third-party subsidiary called Sega Soft. 
mm. which was making, I think, some stuff for Saturn and maybe PC. And then somebody came up with uh, a way of, I think, reducing latency in online games. And again, this was way ahead of its time. So Heat was like the, you know, the Xbox Live or the PSN or whatever. It was a matchmaking service that allowed people to um, compete. There was leaderboards, there was prizes, there was all kinds of bells and whistles to have player engagement. There was also microtransactions and virtual currency. So this was an idea that was 30 years ahead of its time. It was way too expensive. I think they're spending upwards of millions of dollars a month on the servers, and there's probably maybe only like 5,000 paying customers for the service. So like that was not going to be long for life. But you know, it was a great experience, and we're working on a lot of kind of like cutting edge MMOs, a lot of things dealing with virtual currency and trading of virtual objects and games. So that was fun while it lasted. That's amazing. And did you then move on to Nintendo? Is that right? I'm just want to get the order correct. Yep. And then after that, I went to Nintendo and mainly there worked on a lot of Game Boy games, but played everything that is probably more well-known through that time from Donkey Kong 64, Jet Force, Gemini, Smash Brothers, Perfect Dark, Eternal Darkness. So what more like those were my games. Yeah. So that was more like, so we also, also had an evaluation part of my job and those were probably more in the evaluation standpoint, whereas the games I worked on were like Warlock, Little Mermaid Pinball, Alice in Wonderland, Pocket Soccer, less well-known games. R-Type R- DX, is that right? And R-Type DX. Yeah, which I'm a fan of the R-Type series, actually. And, and Warlocked got some good reviews. You know, I haven't played Warlocked, to be fair, but you, you, that's, quite a, that's quite a well-respected Game Boy game, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Basically, we took um, Warcraft and then like reduced it down to fit on the Game Boy Color. Uh, you could play multiplayer. I think you could trade your troops um, via the IR port in the, in the Game Boy Color. So again, that was very advanced. Um, there was probably, probably maybe needed to a bit, do a bit more education and onboarding so that people kind of understood what they could do within the game. Again, I think in those days you had Pokemon. And the thing about Pokemon is that people definitely went out of their way to learn about the world of Pokemon. However, if you have something that doesn't have a cartoon on TV, but you're trying to do similar types of stuff, maybe there needs to have been a little bit more education and onboarding within the game and within the marketing, which I think made, made it kind of a tough sell, even though, you know, it won, you know, game of the year awards. So it was critically acclaimed, but the sales weren't there to garner a sequel. I don't know. What's, what's better, a really well selling game that doesn't necessarily get the critics uh, talking or a really highly acclaimed, you know, credits game that doesn't, have you got a view on that at all? Or? Uh, the old person in me says the best-selling game. Mm. Like, I think the critical view, yeah, it's nice to have that. Obviously, you want both, or you want that happy medium, mm. or you want great, awesome reviews and selling a million copies. I would <laughs> yeah, say yeah. probably the worst things that I've ever worked on are the ones that have sold the most. Oh, really? For sure. Seriously? Wow. Yeah. Can I put you on the spot and ask what games they are, or is that a bit personal? <laughs> Oh, no. So, I mean, I think the things that Nintendo definitely tended to sell well because they had um, good sales channels, and so there are yeah. bonuses. But when I was in the toy industry, we, we, you know, 
I made a Texas Hold'em electronic handheld game mm. in literally a week in China. And, I want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I want to hear about this. Very interesting. And, and that one probably sold a million pieces in like a month. And it was buggy. So there's not always a correlation. Sometimes you just got to hit the right time with the right product, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's talk, so you, you worked in Nintendo. You made quite a few games. Did you then move on to, you worked in the toy industry. Is that right? Right. So I worked in a few other video game companies. And then some of my other friends that I knew in the video game had transitioned to the toy industry. And at that time, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bratz dolls, but they were riding yeah. high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, entered into the toy industry, mainly making like board games and like dance mats for the Bratz dolls. So those had, the toy industry is like the video game industry, but no budget and much higher sales pressure. Really? Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, it was fun, but you're like, again, you have no money and you're given limited resources and just told to pull magic out of your behind on like <laughs> a constant basis. And sometimes it works. You're just kind of like, like throwing stuff at the wall. Sometimes, you know, you get a hit and other times, you know, it's in the landfill. So you said the Texas Hold'em game. Was that like a, that was a physical game? Was that a video game? Yeah, it was like those old Tiger handhelds. Except oh, right. Like, oh, yeah, it's like those gotcha. casino games that you'd get at yeah, the airport yeah, yeah. that a grandmother would play on the plane or on the bus. Did you get commission for each one that was sold? <laughs> Absolutely not. I, you know, sometimes, like, and it's tough to make that judgment. Sometimes you should say, okay, don't pay me, give me commission, and other times yeah. give me a salary. And knowing when to, like, take those trade-offs is, is, is very difficult. Not saying that that would have been an option, but those are the types of life lessons it takes a while to kind of, like, figure out, you know, how to, yeah, yeah. How to, how to grade your equity in different projects. Nice. Did, did, did your two sort of industries ever collide? Was there, so, for example, did you ever work on any video games uh, as toys, like to- characters or, you know? Um, I think that um, when we were at MGA, obviously, we had licenses, and we would look at what THQ or whomever the license was for the Bratz games because mm-hmm. we were both the game group. They would just kick it to us and go, oh, is this acceptable? We'd play a few rounds and we're like, yeah, you know what? It's a Bratz game. Mm. And then when I was in the toy game, technically we were making video games all the time because we, we made a lot of these those plug-in TV games. So we made yeah. like Guitar Hero knockoff, a Dance Dance Revolution knockoff. And those were actually kind of, I don't know, they were pretty mediocre. Like you had MIDI music. You know, they were for like four-year-old girls that just wanted the aspirational play of playing a guitar. Yeah. But when at some point we actually started making good ones, but those were the ones that we could actually never sell. So we had a really, we had a, a great roller coaster tycoon knockoff that played exactly like roller coaster tycoon, but we couldn't sell it. And that one was like 99.9% done. Oh, wow. And then we had a Shrek fighting game that was probably 75% done. It was one of those games it was like kind of like a Wii boxing type of game where wow, yeah. a bunch yeah, and it was with Shrek, and it had all, we had like all the voice act, all the official voice actors from Shrek saying a lot of funny lines. The <laughs> collision was pretty good, but it was a little too pricey for the, for the retail buyer. So that one ended up getting shelved. And then one of the more interesting things that we had at MGA of things that didn't get released was we actually created, this was probably right around the time of the iPod. 
we created our own handheld gaming system that could play our own custom games as well as Flash games. Oh, nice. So you could take what was the the armor or the mini clip or whatever the whatever was that big website at the time. Theoretically, you could download those games into the memory and it would play those actual like mini clip games on this handheld device, or you could play like 16 or 32 bit games if we had them developed as well. It read everything off the SD card. It had video, MP3 oh. player. It was a neat little device, but then again, it was really expensive and you know, we didn't really have the budget to execute the Fair way enough. it needed to be and, and you, you worked on some consoles, is that right as well? Um, like a Wii, a Wii knockoff, is that fair? Or? Yeah, so once I got out of uh, MGA, the people that I'd worked, uh, worked with on some of these other projects and some ex... Uh, I don't know, have you interviewed uh, Steve Mitchell from Lore? No, I haven't actually, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you should definitely interview him because he started before I did, and um, he, he did Highland, he did Highlander for the, wow. um, the Jaguar the Jag- CD. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the first, and he did, uh, I think, Fat Bobby on the Lynx. Oh, so nice. So he was working, working with Atari um, before I was. So we teamed up with a factory in China to produce a, like, basically, effectively, it was a Wii knockoff. It had a bunch of games built in. Uh, we had like shooting games, um, puzzle games, and then we had the ability to download other games that you could put on a SD card, and then you could play. Then you could, in theory, have like an infinite amount of games. And so, you know, we had great motion controls. We had like a microphone. Um, we had a. We included a grip controller, so you could actually. If there was a hand on screen, you could squeeze the controller and it would pick up the items on screen. So it was, it was a pretty cool system. Um, we mainly sold it in Latin America and India. So I would go to China and we would set up these booths at these Chinese trade shows. And then people from every country in the world would come by and then basically would just sit there and just try to like sell them this unit. I mean, we'd only do like, unfortunately, we never got huge orders. We would just get like onesies, twosies, or somebody would buy like 100 pieces. And they would show up to the factory with, like, a briefcase full of cash, and then we'd have a pallet of the consoles, and it would be like Miami Vice. It would be, like, some <laughs> kind of, like, weird drug deal, because they'd have, like, this, like, uh, little truck and a briefcase full of cash, and then they'd give us the cash, we'd give them the console, and they'd, like, go on in their merry way and put it in their shipping container, and they'd sell it at their store in, you know, India. Nice. That must have been amazing. I mean... <laughs> Incredible times, yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was it was very interesting because you kind of understood, you know, like how to make a physical product. The factory actually worked on a lot of uh, peripherals for Nintendo, Sega. Um, a lot of those third-party controllers that you see, they were the yeah, ones yeah. That actually did the design and the development for them. And then, like uh, Nyko or somebody would just do the distribution on them. Oh, amazing! Amazing. Um. What projects are you currently working on? Are you still in the games industry? Are you working in the toys? What are you up to now? So right now, um, me and Steve, uh, actually, and his son, who's actually a great coder as well, um, we created a retro gaming console. So it's a non-Raspberry Pi-based um, NES emulator, effectively. So we had a buyer for it like a year or so ago, but that deal has never really moved forward. So I'm trying to figure out how to sell that, 
how to repackage it and, you know, make it a viable product. Maybe I'll go the Kickstarter route. Yeah. So I'm still kind of working on that, but there's a lot of competition in this kind of retro gaming um, arena. You've got, you know, one-up arcades and things like that. So that's a little tricky. And then on the casual gaming front, I'm working on a visual novel. So these are like, um, kind of like comic booky versions of romance novels. Um, some are on PC, but this one is, uh, based on mobile. Oh, nice. You, you've always, uh, I respect you, Farron. You've always, um, tried new things. You always, you know, try and be creative. And I like how you, you change industries. It all kind of sort of links back together in a way. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Like I said, work, sometimes I'm working with the same people I've been working with for like, you know, 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, again, we, we don't like to get too political on arcade attack, but, um, black lives matter has been huge in the UK, obviously big in the U S huge as well. Um, as a black man yourself, would you, what's your views on this? I mean, are you, can you, can you go into a bit of detail how you feel about the whole black lives matter? No, I think it's kind of essential. I think it's probably kind of coming too late, but, Obviously, if you look at the history of America and where, you know, black people fit in, we've been here kind of from the beginning and we still have not necessarily gotten everything that um, we, we deserved. I mean, even at the Declaration of Independence, black people were still technically not, quote, full humans. And then even up until the 60s, you still had a you still had to pass a civil rights act just to say that, you know, black people were being treated equal. And I would say in the game industry, I think definitely there are a lot of issues with representation as well as the people that are creating the images that go into the games. Um, In the industry, I can't say that I've necessarily felt clear overt discrimination, but it's kind of always there kind of lingering in the background just due to kind of the systemic issues in America. Um, in terms of like when you see on the news, I don't know exactly what the situation is in the UK, but here when you see, you know, people just getting um, assaulted by the cops, while I can't say that I've been physically assaulted, I've definitely been pulled over by the cops for absolutely no reason and, you know, handcuffed and, you know, made to sit on the curb while they realize that I'm not the person that they were actually looking for. So even somebody that's somewhat successful as me, you still have a lot of weird indignities that you kind of have to live through that other people don't experience. And I think it is, that's why you're seeing this bubbling up because now that we actually have cameras you know, it's been kind of slow going, but I think that people can kind of see the the difference in treatment in terms of people in America. And hopefully, you know, I mean, I'm optimistic and want to be optimistic that, you know, we kind of achieve a better system where there's definitely a lot more equality for everyone. So I'd like to be optimistic about it, but only time will tell. I think I know. Uh, I, I really appreciate your answer, Frank. Because I don't want to, you know. Obviously, I appreciate the honesty there as well. Do you feel there should be more opportunities for black people in the video game industry? I mean, I, I I've spoken to a lot of people in the past. We've interviewed lots of people, but it, it does seem to be there's there's not many black people as programmers. Or am I, am I talking again rubbish here? Is that- no, you're 100 percent 
correct. Yes, there needs to be um, in the whole world of uh, tech as well as gaming. There definitely like needs to be more black representation. Um, I know a few people, but we're only talking literally like a handful of, of black programmers that I've encountered throughout my life in video games and probably just as many artists. Mm. And, you know, as they say, representation matters. And now that we're getting into things like AI, facial recognition, you know, it's very important that you have a diverse group of people that are in charge of implementing the UI, the UX, how the, the algorithms on what data and how the data is collated of um, what these machines are taking in so that it's not lopsided towards one group or another under the guise of making it equal. And just, just even the representation of the characters in video games. I mean, in general, most people's um, idea of black people in video games are like from Street Fighter. And yeah. I can say Street Fighter probably does not get an A in terms of representation of any ethnicity. But that is also kind of problematic as well. As you definitely need more diverse representations of black people getting away from the big Afro jive-talking tough guy. Yeah. And, you know, and then you'll see that in modern games like Gears of War. So there's... So there's still a long way to go in terms of getting, you know, a more balanced representation of not just black people, but probably all types of people with different, you know, features and abilities, just so that, you know, everybody is playing games. And I think everybody wants to be able to see themselves represented well in these video games, even though they are fantasy. And on the other side, by having more balanced representation allows other people to see different representations of different groups doing things that in their blinded world, they didn't know. And, you know, obviously there needs to be featured more, you know, black programmers and artists so that, you know, the black kids can understand that this is a goal that they can achieve as well. And honestly, there's almost none of that. And, you know, for America to go into the future in a great way or the world to go into the future in a great way, you know, everybody, you know, has to see that all of their possibilities are equal. Yeah. I, again, like I said, we don't like to get too political, but at the end of the day, everyone should be treated exactly the same, or the same opportunities. That's my personal right. people need yeah. to People need the same opportunities and need to see the same representation and, you know, kind of the history of America. Like, you can see now... Now that you have the internet and you have cameras and real time, you can kind of see some of the weird seams and just our ways of how we've represented all types of people and genders in the past probably does not necessarily align with something that says, you know, all men are created equal. And, um, you know, it's tough to have that as the opening of your country and not actually doing that in reality. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I really, what a great answer. Okay. I can't really say much more to that. I think you've spoke really well then. Thank you. Um, you've been really, I've really genuinely enjoyed the chat so far. And I've got a few last minute questions just to finish up. Oh, yeah, but, no problem. But it's been brilliant fun. Um, this is a tough question actually. What is your favorite video game of all time? Your personal favorite? You know what? It's like movies. I don't necessarily have a favorite. Like, 
in general, those types of things, it's like, what is engaging to me at the moment? Like, um, I mean, obviously I like the Zeldas, the Marios. Um, my favorite game series is probably like the Shin Megami Tensei and the Persona series. But now I kind of have this rule. If a game series has been out for like more than 20 years or more than three sequels, I'm kind of pulling the plug on it because I want to see new experiences and new ideas out in the marketplace. So I would say the Persona series is probably, quote, my favorite. Um, But even that, I may have to put that on hold. Then the same with like the Yakuza series. They're into the fourth or fifth iterations. I might have to pull that on hold. So I want to kind of want to see what the new stuff is. Ah, good. Good stuff. Love it. Um, This is a bit of a weird question, but if you could step inside any of the games you ever worked on and live there for a day, which game would you choose and why? Would it be (laughs) Bubsy's World, for example? Um, I'm trying to think. You know what? It would probably have to be something like Brat's Life because, A, like, I'm not going to get killed. (laughs) And it's, like, based on fun and shopping and interacting and hanging out. Like, yeah, the reality of being in a real video game, uh, that doesn't really seem... Even (laughs) even something like Yakuza, where, like, 30 or 40% of the game is just devoted to drinking and hanging out in karaoke bars, while that might be great... The other part is, you know, getting shanked in the streets. <laughs> so I think I might have to, like, hedge my bets to go to the non-lethal world where it's, you know, most of the characters are female. You can hang out and you can buy stuff and not get killed. So I'm putting not getting killed as a kind of like the prime requisite in this case. Yeah, fair enough. And actually quite a few of your games do end are quite dangerous, aren't they, the ones you worked on, to be fair? Yeah, you know, there's war, there's maiming, <laughs> even something even something as innocuous as fairy tales and Bubsy still kind of works out to be pretty deadly. Yeah, of course, of course. What well, well Farron, my final question then is another bit of a wacky question. But if you could share a few drinks of any video game character, who would you choose and why? I think I would have to go back to um the Yakuza world. I don't mm. know the characters' names offhand, but that is a video game that is devoted to boozing it up and partying so that world they've got the drinks on lock they've got the karaoke they've got the hostess bars they've got all that stuff um might be a bit crass but you know what it's probably a good party on that end love it i might join you as well sounds lovely look farron i genuinely mean it this has been a love i love this interview it's been so interesting and um you know your text interview is great but just getting the chance to hear some stories a bit more detail uh, it's been absolutely well a real pleasure so thank you oh no it's been great and if you guys have any more questions or want to do it again i'm always available oh you're a true gentleman well farron look after yourselves and um yeah we'll we'll hopefully talk in the future sounds great thanks for listening to today's podcast we really hope you enjoyed it if you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else you can tweet us at arcade attack uk at keith barlow 82 and at arcade underscore adriano we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcadeattackuk. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top tens, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, 
where you can also leave us a review and a rating which we would really really appreciate so until next time take care and we'll speak to you soon